That's all there is, right? What would happen if we shook up that formula? Imagine if we went out of our way to engage with our world, co-workers, neighbors, old friends, and not just engage, disciple. Imagine if we took one year and discipled one person from our world, took a year and truly shared the message of love, salvation, and freedom in Christ to that one person. And what if inside that year that person started to follow Jesus? But let's not stop there. What if the next year that person began to disciple someone else, and you did the same thing, and two more people came to know Christ? And what if you did this year after year, person after person, and each of them picked one person year after year, and each of them, and each of them? If this kept going for 30 years, that would mean that 1,073,741,824 people could hear the gospel. That's a little more than eight. The thing is, it's not a joke, and it's not a gimmick. Most importantly, it's not impossible. It's one person boldly making a commitment to bringing one other person to Christ. And it all starts by asking the question, who's your one? If you want to turn somewhere in your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 11. That'll be our main text this morning, Acts chapter 11. The other scriptures that I'll have will be on the PowerPoint. Uh, The last month or so, starting early January, I posed the question, what does it look like to be a functioning church member, a member of the church body? And we've talked about here at Pine Tree, being a member at this church, there's five facets or five expectations. And each week we've gone through those. We expect you to be here Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. and worship with us. Uh, We expect you to, to find one of our Bible communities and commit to that and study and grow with other believers. We expect you to be a part of a connect group. We expect you to offer uh, one area of service like we talked about last week. And then our fifth facet is, is discipleship. We expect everyone who is a member of this church, a part of this body, to disciple one person, to disciple someone. So that's what we're going to talk about starting this morning and for the next several weeks because we believe this is incredibly important. There's been a lot of important conversations going on between the ministry staff and the elders. This is something that we have talked about for several months now. We're going to begin to really unpack what we mean by making disciples, by who's your one. And we believe this is incredibly important. In Luke chapter 6, this is going to be on the PowerPoint uh, you know, Matthew, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus has the Sermon on the Mount. That's the most famous sermon he has. Luke chapter 6, there's a lot of similar teachings. Some have referred to Luke 6 as the Sermon on the Plain instead of the Sermon on the Mount. But in Luke 6, Jesus gives what I believe is the definition of discipleship. This verse that I'm about to pop up right here, this is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. He says, the student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like their teacher. That's what following Jesus is all about. Training to become like him. We are the student, he is the teacher. And we are in a lifelong pursuit of Jesus. A lifelong pursuit of trying to live and think and act like Jesus. That's what discipleship is all about. You know, growing up as a kid, I felt like I was a pretty normal child. 
And like most normal kids, I was a big fan of professional wrestling. Anybody agree with that? To be a normal child, you're a wrestling fan? Uh, by the time I got into junior high, my seventh grade year, I didn't really know that, uh, that it wasn't cool anymore to be a wrestling fan. So a lot of changes were taking place. Guys and girls were starting to pay attention to each other. But I was over here by myself, still a big fan of wrestling. And there was one wrestler in particular that I really liked. It's this guy right here. His name was Mick Foley. And he became my favorite wrestler. I like Mick Foley because he was funny. He was a little bit overweight at the time when I was in seventh grade. I felt the same way. I felt like I had the same body type he did. Uh, but he was also tough. Everybody loved him. He was really tough. He earned the nickname the Hardcore Legend because he could take a lot of pain. And I know wrestling is staged, but I've always defended wrestling by saying the pain is real. And so he would take real pain. So my older brother and an older friend of ours named Jason, uh, they picked up on this. And when they wanted me to do crazy stuff that might get me hurt, they would say stuff like, jump off the roof onto the trampoline or off the fort or off the tree or let me hit you with this chair. And I would say no. They would always follow it with, Mick Foley would do it. <laughs> and so, because I wanted to be like Mick Foley, I would say, all right, do it. And I would let them do all sorts of crazy things to me. Uh, one Monday night, I don't remember what was going on, but we had something at our church. And all the teenagers were up in the youth room. Uh, no adults around. I don't know how that happens, but it was just a bunch of teenagers and my brother and Jason were up there also, and they found a, a really sturdy piece of wood. So their first thought was, let us break this piece of wood over your body. And I felt the wood, and I said, no way, that's, that's not going to happen. And they said, Mick Foley would do it. So I said, okay. So they lined up on one end of the room. I lined up on the other. They grabbed both ends of the board, and they said, just run at us full speed. We'll run at you full speed, and you're going to break through the board. So we did. They said, go. I took off running. They took off running. I hit the board. They hit me full speed, and I went down and hit the ground really hard and didn't even make a crack sound. It didn't even sound cool at all, and I, I was hurting. My body just was jarred off the board and off the ground really hard, and I remember this vividly, and I was like, all right, I don't want any more of this, and they said, well, we've got to break it, so we've got to try it again, and I was like, no, I think I'm done, and then they said again, you know, Mick Foley would do it. So I was like, all right, everybody's watching. I got up, I ran at them again, they ran at me. This time I lunged forward, and they, for some reason, kind of went low. So the board hit my hip, and I heard it crack. I flipped over the board, then back around on the other side, and I looked up, and it, just the corner of the wood chipped, and that was it. And I was in a lot of pain. I was fighting back crying in front of everyone, so I hobbled off, and I went into the bathroom and I went to a stall by myself so I could cry and nobody would see me crying. And about a minute later, my brother and Jason walk in with that board. And I thought they were coming in there to check on me. But they're like, hey, everybody's waiting and the board didn't break. <laughs> so you got to try it again. And I said, I'm not doing it. And they said, Mick Foley would do it. And this was a turning point in my life because I said, I don't want to be like Mick Foley anymore. And things changed from then on out, and then I got into preaching and all that stuff. So that, that was my life story right there. But the, I think of that story because the truth is we all imitate somebody. We all follow somebody. We're influenced and shaped by other people, whether or not you want to agree with that. The way we see the world, our worldview, the way we treat people, the way we think, the way we respond is all influenced by other people in our lives. 
Or maybe it's by celebrities, people you see in movies or people you see on TV, but we're influenced and shaped by others. And the root of discipleship, the root of following Jesus, is imitating him. A student is not above the teacher. When he's fully trained, he will be like his teacher. Our text this morning is Acts chapter 11, and I want to go through this. This was our scripture reading this morning also. So you've already heard it read once, and we're going to go through it. And we're going to talk about uh, this text, but also what it has to do with discipleship and this whole who's your one strategy. Starting in verse 19, Luke is writing the book of Acts. This is his second story. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. Verse 19, he said, Those who were scattered because of the persecution that took place over over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, and they spoke the word to no one except the Jews. So the church in Jerusalem is persecuted. Stephen is killed in Acts chapter 7, so a lot of people are scattered. They're finally leaving their little Christian huddle in Jerusalem, and they're scattering all over the place. So they're bringing the message of Jesus with them, but the problem is it's limited. They're speaking only to their own kind. They're only speaking to those who have a background in Judaism. But something happens in between verse 19 and verse 20. Something changes. Verse 20, But among them were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also proclaiming the Lord Jesus. So somewhere in between verse 19 and verse 20, word, which traveled slowly at that time, this was before social media, before television, word gets to Antioch that the Gentiles have now become disciples of Jesus. And Peter was right there approving of it. The apostles in the church in Jerusalem, they approve of it. So word gets there. So some brave people go around in Antioch And they get out of their comfort zone, and they start preaching and teaching and telling the story of Jesus to Greeks, to outsiders in Antioch. In the ancient world, there were at least 16 different cities called Antioch. This particular Antioch was the capital of Syria, and it was about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And it was home to about half a million residents. It's half a million citizens who need to become followers of Jesus. So they started spreading the message. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. This I'm reading from a New Revised Standard Version, and maybe NIV or something else reads it differently, but let me read that again. The hand of the Lord was with them. Doesn't that sound comforting? The hand of the Lord was with them. Why? A great number of believers... A great number became believers and turned to the Lord. So the Lord is with them when people are turning their lives over to Christ. When people are becoming disciples of Jesus, God's hand is right there with them. I'm going to pop this word up, and you'll probably see it on your bulletin insert, momentum. As you read through the book of Acts, you constantly see momentum. Wherever they're going, whether they're starting in Jerusalem and then start scattering around the world... They start telling the message of Jesus, and people become followers of Jesus. And then Luke gives us these little details that more and more people were coming to the Lord, more and more people were baptized into Christ. 
They gain momentum wherever they go. There's this multiplying effect. One person teaches someone else, that person becomes a follower, and that person goes back and tells their family, and then they tell somebody else, and then it starts spreading. They gain momentum. So this is what's happening in Antioch. Verse 22, news of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, 300 miles south, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Barnabas, we've already seen him twice in the book of Acts, In Acts chapter 4, his original name is not Barnabas. He has several names, and we see that he is a giver. He's selling some of his property. He's giving it to the apostles, and they're giving it to those who are poor. In Acts chapter 9, a man named Saul becomes a disciple of Jesus, but nobody believes him. Because Saul was going around killing Christians. But Barnabas comes to the defense of Saul and says, no, you can trust this guy. He's not some undercover guy trying to catch us. Saul really is a disciple of Jesus, and and now we see Barnabas again. They give him the name, the son of encouragement. That's his spiritual gift. He's an encourager. So they sent him to travel all the way to Antioch. Verse 23, when he came and he saw the grace of God, or the NIV says, saw what the grace of God had done. He rejoiced And he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast devotion. So here comes Barnabas, and here's a group of young Christians, of young disciples. And Barnabas is teaching them and encouraging them. He is continuing to disciple them. They've become disciples, but he's helping them grow. He's helping them along the journey. Verse 24, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were brought to the Lord. So again, we see this momentum. People are coming and wanting to be a part of this. Look at verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So here's Saul's name again. You know him as Paul. Paul who writes half of the New Testament or more. Paul who's one of the greatest missionaries who's ever lived. This Paul but he's still called Saul here before his name is officially changed to Paul. Barnabas leaves Antioch, and he travels 100 miles to Tarsus. This was before there were planes or trains or cars. So he's traveling by foot or by animal. That's a long trip, but he goes 100 miles to search for Saul. Because Barnabas has a one. For that year, Barnabas had a one, and his one is Saul. He said, that's my one, I'm going to go get him, I'm going to bring him back with me, and I'm going to disciple him for a whole year as we work together with this church in Antioch. So he went and he found him and he brought him to Antioch. So for an entire year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. So they're called Christians. This is where the title comes from. We are a part of the Christian religion, Christianity. You've probably told someone before that you're a Christian. This is where you get the name from. Christ, obviously, from Jesus, from Christ, the Messiah, the Greek term. Ian, the suffix, means belonging to the party of. So Christians, they belong to the party of Christ. They belong to the party of Jesus. They're Jesus people, Christ people, Christ followers. That's what the name means. But the term Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Only three times. Here in Acts 11, again in Acts chapter 26, and then in 1 Peter chapter 4. Only three times. The name that we so often use to refer to ourselves, 
to refer to who we are is only used three times in the New Testament. But the term that's usually preferred is the term disciple. Now, disciple and Christian mean the same things. The term Christian in our 21st century America comes with a little bit of baggage. So sometimes I, you know, I lean towards using the term disciple because I think it describes in a more concrete way what this is all about, following Jesus, imitating Jesus. The term disciple is used 230 times in the Gospels and 28 times in Acts. So you can see in the New Testament the term disciple is the preferred name. Disciple has its roots in a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is Talmudim, and it means student or learner. A student or learner to a rabbi. The term disciple in Greek is mathetes. It means the same thing, a student or a learner. A disciple of Jesus, or a disciple in that culture, meant that you had a rabbi, and you're going to follow that rabbi so close to your rabbi that you become like your rabbi, that you take on your rabbi's teachings and your rabbi's lifestyle and worldview. So disciples of Jesus were the same thing. You take on Jesus' view of the world, his teachings, and the way that he lives. That's what a disciple is, someone who imitates Jesus, a student who becomes like their teacher. So we're asking, in this facet of church membership, that all of our church members, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've been baptized into Christ and you are a disciple of Jesus, that you join us in making disciples. And we're challenging you with, who's your one? But you may ask, why? Why do we need to make disciples? Don't we have ministers that work here? Don't we have elders? Why can't they just do it? And we just come to church. Maybe that's what some of you are thinking. So I'll say from the very beginning that the call, the mandate to make disciples that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 and in other places, he didn't say that's for paid ministers or for clergy. He said for disciples to make disciples. So if you're a follower of Jesus, he expects you to make more followers of Jesus. We're all called to make disciples. But I'm going to give you two good reasons on why I think it's really important for us to take serious the call to make disciples, other than the fact that Jesus tells us to. One of those is that I think the world needs more people like Jesus. Would you agree with that? It's a pretty grim place. It can be a pretty dark place. If you just watch the news, just for one night, just pay attention to what's going on in the world, There's a lot of evil out there, a lot of violence, a lot of stories that I wish I didn't have to hear. And the only solution that I could possibly think of is we just need more people who give up their lives to imitate Jesus. The more people that want to fall in love with Jesus and be like him, the better off this world is going to be. So there's a great reason right there. We want more people trying to be like Jesus. The world needs it. Our town needs it. But another reason, which is probably obvious, is eternal life. That if you're in Christ, if you've been baptized into Christ Jesus, not only is your purpose here on this earth to become like him and to make disciples, but it's also the fact that you get to spend eternity with Christ. There's a great reason right there to make disciples because we want to bring people with us 
into eternal life with God into heaven. We don't often talk about hell, but no one talked about hell more than Jesus. You read through the Gospels, Jesus uses that term quite often. Jesus had a very much of an eternal perspective. I want to talk about hell the way Jesus talks about hell. And for Jesus, eternal life was a great reality. Jesus lived on this earth for only about 33 years. And we may live longer than that or shorter than that, but the fact is, life is short. And there's going to come a time where we're all going to stand before God. And I would love to stand before God as a disciple of Jesus and bring as many people with us as possible. Are you with me on that? Does anybody agree on that? We need people that live like Jesus, and we want to bring people with us into eternal life. So there's your need to make disciples. But why just one? Why not two or three or five? If, you're, if this is so important to make disciples, why not more? Why can't we challenge you with more? Well, let's be realistic. Last week we talked about service. And I challenged you to find one area of service, not, not two or three or five And I mentioned that sometimes we get trapped by our own lives. We have bills to pay, a family to take care of, a a marriage to nurture, our own illnesses, our own problems that we have to take care of, and life gets busy, and we get worn down, and maybe God is just calling us to find one area to serve in, and maybe God is just calling us to find one person to disciple. That video that we watched at the beginning of this, um, it was made by the Hills Church in Fort Worth. They started this strategy, Who's Your One, a couple of years ago. A man named David Meyer is their evangelism minister. And I've I've been connected with David. He's kind of been the driving force behind the Who's Your One strategy. I've had many conversations with him on the phone. He came to Pine Tree a couple of weeks ago. And he did a little session with the ministers and the elders and a few of our deacons. Kind of gives us the big picture. But one of the things that he shared with us about what's worked for them in Fort Worth with this challenging their church with who's your one, he said before that, they had the amount of baptisms in the last 15 years. And he said now in the last two years, they've had over 900 baptisms. Once they started challenging the members of their church to disciple one person, it took a few months But as God began to reveal that to each person, and they began to disciple someone that's in their life, people started coming to Christ. Momentum picked up, like we see over and over again in the book of Acts. I think sometimes we just think that stuff is ancient and it can't happen today. But I want to be a part of a disciple-making movement. I want to be a part of a group of people that takes serious this commission that says, we want to go and we want to make disciples. And that's what God is calling us to do. That's our vision, to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. But if we're going to make disciples, we have to be a disciple. Remember Jesus says, the student is not above the teacher, but when he's fully trained, he'll be, or they'll be, like their teacher. So if we're going to invite people to come be a part of this kingdom of God, People are going to examine us to see whether or not we actually live in the house that we're inviting them to come live in. At some point, there's a put-up or shut-up aspect to it. 
If we invite people to be disciples, they want to see, do you really take it serious? Do you live your life as a professing disciple of Jesus? And it doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. To make disciples, it doesn't mean that you have to get to a certain level of discipleship before you can start making disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, if you were just baptized last week, God is calling you to make disciples. You're not going to be perfect. In fact, God works through our imperfections. As we journey through life, trying to follow Christ, others will pick up on that. But if we're going to make disciples, we need to live as disciples ourselves. There's been a lot of approaches to what we might say evangelism. Uh, Evangelism kind of has this stigma, kind of like the term Christian. But there's some baggage that comes with it. There's been a lot of approaches to evangelism over the years. As I was studying for this, I came across one strategy that a church had where they came up with an idea to get a gospel track. And they put the story of Jesus and how to become a follower of Jesus, how to receive salvation on this track. And they rented uh, t-shirt gun launchers. And they put the tracks in the t-shirt gun launcher and they drove over town and they shot the tracks at people as they would walk down the road or go in and out of stores. And they thought if we hit them with a track, it's going to get their attention, they're going to pick it up and read it, and maybe one person will become a Christian. That was their strategy for evangelism. And at the end of it all... They're not sure if anybody actually came to Christ, but nobody wound up coming to their church. But they tried something. I read of another church that tried what they called the gospel blimp. And this is a true story. They rented a blimp, and they got these gospel tracks, and they flew the blimp all over town, dropping tracks everywhere, in people's backyards, and parking lots, everywhere. So they thought, if we just flood our town with gospel tracks, people are going to read them, and people are going to come to Christ. And then a few days later, the police showed up and gave them a ticket for littering all over town. And they got a lot of negative responses. There's been a lot of approaches to evangelism, to making disciples. And some of you may think, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't, I don't know how to just show up at somebody's house and say, let me tell you the gospel. We're going to offer some training on March 4th. Dr. Looney is coming to be with us. And he's going to show us some approaches to evangelism that you may find that is accessible. That as you go through life and have conversations, you're going to find ways to begin having spiritual conversations with people like Jesus does with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And take a normal conversation and turn it into a spiritual conversation and begin to make disciples. Are we making converts or are we making disciples? Remember, Barnabas goes and he gets Saul in Acts chapter 11. He goes to Tarsus and he brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they stayed with that church. So what Barnabas was doing was he was discipling Paul as they worked together. He didn't just let Saul become a convert and drop him. So we're called to make disciples. And this word convert or converted to Christ, that's another one of those words like evangelism or like the term Christian that sometimes comes with a lot of thoughts, a lot of mixed emotions. A man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer, you've probably heard of before. He has this famous quote, several famous quotes, but this one is, Christianity without discipleship is always Christianity without Christ. If you believe the right things, and maybe you show up for church, but nothing in your life 
shows that you're actually trying to follow Jesus, then what he claims is that's Christianity without Christ. A man named Bill Hole has what he calls it barcode Christians. Christians who intellectually say they believe in Jesus, they believe the right things, but they're not actually following Jesus. Or even more recently, a man named Kyle Eidelman wrote a book called Not a Fan. This is kind of a popular level book. But in the book, he challenges all Christians, all who are reading this book, are you a fan of Jesus? Are you actually following him? Are you an enthusiastic admirer of Jesus? You know, I've lived in several different places. And if you went in my closet, you would find shirts that represent Greenville, Texas. Greenville powerlifting, Greenville football. But then I lived in Mount Pleasant for eight or nine years, and so I have several Mount Pleasant shirts. And now I live in a small town called White Oak, Texas that never heard of before I came here, but I'm learning to like it, and I, maybe someday I'll get a White Oak shirt. But wherever I go, you know, you just you support the town. You become a fan of their sports teams, of their school, and you support them. But it changes wherever you go. That's what a fan is. You sit in the stands and you cheer. But following Jesus isn't just cheering for him and then moving on to something else. Following Jesus is getting down on the field and being with him. And this is what Kyle Eidelman was challenging those with. We need to become followers of Jesus. One of my favorite authors, the late Dallas Willard, says, we don't just need to get people into heaven, we need to get heaven into people. We want people to go to heaven. But we want to get Christ here now. We want to have Christ formed in you. That's what Paul talks about in Galatians 4. Paul uses a very strange example, but he says, I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Paul had this desire for Jesus to be formed in people that followed him. So who's your one? Who is one person in your life that God is calling you to disciple? That doesn't mean that you have to decide right now who it is, who's your one. We're just asking you today to begin praying. For God to open your eyes to see somebody that you work with or a neighbor or someone you go to school with, someone that is in your life on a normal basis. And who is God calling you to begin a discipling relationship with? We all follow somebody. It may not be Mick Foley, it may not be a celebrity, but you're influenced by somebody. We follow somebody. People out there are going to become a part of a story. They're going to be influenced by someone, and we want that someone to be Jesus. Barnabas had a one, and his one was Saul. Luke has a one, and we're going to talk about that next week. You have a one, and you just don't know it yet. So ask that God will show that to you. This morning, as we get ready to wrap this up and offer an invitation, I just want to offer this challenge. If you're sitting in this audience None of us are perfect, but if you're feeling, if you felt when we put up that barcode Christian or fan or follower, if you're thinking, you know what, that's me. I've really just been more of a fan or more of a barcode Christian that just kind of believes the right things. Then maybe today's an opportunity for you to repent. You can come up front, but we say this every week, we have six shepherds in this church and they're going to be around the building And maybe this is an opportunity for you to just grab one and say, this is out of my comfort zone, 
But I want to take this more serious. I want to become a deeper follower of Jesus. Can you pray for me? Maybe that's your response this morning. Some of you may be sitting in here right now, maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus yet, but you want to be. Right behind us, I don't know if you know this or not, we have a baptistry. You can become a baptized disciple of Jesus today if you want. We just want you to know that there's an opportunity to respond. And in just a second, Tony's going to lead us in some more songs. And come up here, find a shepherd in the back, but take this opportunity to respond if you need to. Let's stand and sing.
bright and shining way. I'm in the glory land 